Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome back to Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United for the penultimate chapter of our 30-episode walk through the entire 140-year history of the club that began life as Stanley FC in 1881, became Newcastle East End shortly after that, then rebranded famously as Newcastle United in 1892. It's been quite a, a story, quite a journey, and last week's episode saw us cover the Pardew years and a brush with the Champions League before an implosion left the club relegated after a pretty disastrous spell under Steve McLaren. But there was reason for optimism, with Rafa Benitez installed in the dugout, and although he was... Unable to rescue the team from relegation, he agreed to stay and attempted at least to breathe some life back into the club. Um, the Rafa era is the focus of this week's episode. And joining myself and Paul Joanneau to discuss this period in the club stories, a man who literally wrote the book on Rafa. Mm. It's Chronicle Live's former Newcastle United editor, Mark Douglas, who is now Northern football correspondent at the Eye Paper and the author of the book, The Rafa Lucian. Mark, welcome to the episode. Hello, guys. You okay? Yes, we're good. Yep. We're good. Thanks Thanks so much for joining us. Of course, you, you transferred to the iPaper at the end of, of uh, last year, 2021, after 14 years at, at the Chronicle, but you're obviously well known to our listeners and, and in a way, responsible for this series because I, I actually pitched you the idea, didn't I, for, for this, if you remember, in early 2021. You basically greenlit it so, um, and let me get on with it. So thanks for, for that. Thanks for showing faith and commissioning yeah. what's been a, a really interesting series. Yeah, bizarre. It still still feels a bit bizarre to say former former Chronicle, you know. But um, but yeah, it's been it's been good to sort of get into something new. But obviously, like the Chronicle always have a massive part of my heart. And yeah, I'm glad it's I'm glad it's worked out as well as it has. You know, you've you've taken the ball and and run with it, as as they say. Mm-hmm. We have we have, and, and you're the first to acknowledge that your time covering the club coincided with some difficult seasons, shall we say? But the rougher years, they were probably some of the brightest. Is that fair to say? I think, yeah, in terms of just everything that was going on around the club, it felt like that. Yeah, I mean, the, the Pardew fifth-place season was the, was the best in terms of the, the, the results and in terms of where, where the club were going. But the season that Newcastle came up from the Championship was probably the most united and the most together uh, time uh, until, you know, pretty much now, you know, where, where, where it does feel like there's a sense of unity behind the club again. But, but we had that in a very brief period um, for a season, I think, in the Championship, although... You know, we'll probably get into it. Like halfway through the season, that kind of that kind of antagonism sort of started up again. But we definitely had for a good six months, probably the most united and the most, you know, I think the most forward-looking that Newcastle were under Mike Ashley. And you know, I don't really understand why he didn't take that blueprint and and, and um, you know and build on it. But he did decided not to. And um, yeah, like it, it, I mean, it was great to work with with Benitez as, at the time because we had had a run of managers who were, you know, you know, probably not at the level that Rafa's at. You know, there weren't bad managers. I think some of them that did okay. Pardew did pretty well. McLaren, obviously, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd done big things in the game, but then you had Rafa, former Champions League winner, previously at Real Madrid, coming to Newcastle. It did feel like surreal, but but yeah, I'd say this was amongst the most interesting and, and for a time, very much enjoyable part of covering Newcastle in those 14 years. 
Yeah, yeah, we'll get into that. We'll get into that properly in in the episode. But uh, coming to you, Paul. Last week we chronicled the sixth relegation in Newcastle's history since their election to the Football League in 1893, and we're picking up with the club about to embark on the second attempt to bounce back up into the Premier League under the ownership of Mike Ashley. But thanks to the presence of Rafa, uh, there was a there was a real optimism around the place that summer, wasn't there? Uh, there was. Uh, United were back in Tier Two, of course, uh, and once more needed a quick return to the cash rich Premier League uh, and Rafa made sure that happened. Uh, um, he was hugely experienced and, and uh, his knowledge was was a key part in, in Newcastle ending up as champions for season 2016-17. And in the end, they they really cruised to promotion as had happened under Chris Hutton uh, two or three years back. There was much transfer activity in the season as players came and went, of course. Uh, big fees were received for Wijnaldum, Suzuko and Townsend, who all wanted top-level football, United took in around £68 million. New names came, Atsu, Clark, Diarmi, Gamez, as well as Hanley, Hayden, Daryl Murphy, Sells, Yedlin and Matt Ritchie. There was quite a line of them. Dwight Gale came also from Crystal Palace for £10 million to lead the line and he scored 23 goals, while Ritchie was hugely effective with another 16 goals. Captain Lascelles was dominant at the back, so all in all, uh, they had a good, strong side for the championship. Yeah, Mark, what are your memories from from this summer? It was it was inevitable that like, players like Sissoko and Wijnaldum would leave, but Rafa seemed to make some really shrewd signings for the, for the championship that Paul was listing off there. So a lot of them are still here, which is quite telling. But um, yeah, it was a busy summer period, wasn't it? Yeah, I think what was what was really interesting, I think about the about the the, the Benitez summer was. Um, that we all kind of fretted, I think, yeah, we kind of forget, but at the end of the season that he got relegated, it was not a given that he was going to stay at all. In fact, I mean, for, for most of the time towards the end of the season, I mean, people around him were sort of saying he's probably not going to stay. So the fact that he, he did stay, and then and then what we had, and obviously, like, we've kind of all erased the Mike Ashley era out of our memory um, uh, in the last few weeks. But what we forget is that Mike Ashley actually, at that point, he turned to Lee Charnley and said, what Rafa wants, Rafa gets, which was the, which was the philosophy of that summer. Um, and I think, you know, look, in the end, obviously it was inevitable, I think, that Sissoko was going to go. It was inevitable that Brian Adam was going to go as well because there were two players who were too good for the championship and Newcastle needed to sell them as well financially. Um, but it, but he was told at the start of that summer, look, if you if those players stay, they stay. And if you can keep them, you know, if nobody comes in with the bid that we want from them, they will stay and they will have to stay. So it was quite, it was quite an interesting summer, really, because they did their business early. They did their business decisively, which is kind of what we've always, we, we always want from Newcastle, especially when they need to. Um, they got Dwight Gale in fairly early on, which I thought was a, a really important signing. The first signing was a goalkeeper, which was bizarre. And uh, Matt Sells, you know, obviously didn't, hmm. didn't do much in the end. Um, but what was, I thought what was really interesting was that Benitez was given a free hand to mould the squad how he wanted. And what he did, he did sign some exceptional players. You know, we saw Matt Ritchie and, and Dwight Gale, I think were two of the better players in the championship that season. What he did do um, was strengthen the team in terms of the depth of the squad, because he knew he'd looked at the championship and soon seen what they needed to do. And he likened it to almost the Champions League. I'll have to play um, three games in a week. I'll have to play Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, pretty much throughout the season, especially if we go far in the League Cup, which they did. And he decided he needed... You know, you talk about Hanley there. Um, you talk about Daryl Murphy, who obviously ended up coming into coming into his own for a brief period in the in the middle of the season and did really really well. But what he did, which other managers hadn't been able to do, was sign players who were 
going to bring the level of the squad up. So it wasn't necessarily the superstars. It was your uh, Murphys, your Hanleys, those kind of players. It was the idea was, look, if we lose a player or if we have to rest the player and rotate, we'll have players of equal ability to come in. And I think that was very much his his philosophy from the start. It was actually his philosophy in the Premier League as well. He, he added numbers because he wanted the squad as a whole to be much stronger than it had been. Um, and I think it was a it was a winning formula, really. I, I think you could see from early on that they, they just had too much for a lot of teams in the Premier League. They didn't necessarily have the best the best starting eleven. I don't think, at times. You know, there were other teams. I think we saw Huddersfield that year, didn't we? And uh, Brighton, mm-hmm. obviously, in the end, threw away the championship. But they probably had as good a starting eleven. Huddersfield, in the end, um, fell away. But, you know, at times they had players who, who were performing better than some of Newcastle's players. But Newcastle were just ready for the grind. They did really well for a brief period. They had Shelby players like that who were obviously fantastic superstars in that division. But they had enough players to get through the really tricky moments. And I think that was, for me, the big the big success of what he did in the summer. He, he, he had a philosophy in his mind, put it through, and they finished really, really strongly. And they finished with you know more than enough to spare in the end to, to, to go up. Yeah. The finish was great. The start, I remember, Paul, was very bad. Defeat away to Fulham. Then they lost at home to Huddersfield, but it picked up, didn't it? And, and they got the job done and even managed to secure the title on a dramatic final day. Yeah, they did stutter at the beginning. They felt the championship was quite a bit different to the Premier League, but they did get underway and reach the you know, top of the league and, and more or less stayed there for a long time and watched by an average of 51,000 at Gallagher. The football wasn't Attractive at times, but with Newcastle ground out the results. And as spring approached, they played promotion rivals Brighton, Huddersfield and Reading uh, and, and were unbeaten. Um, then they had a poor Arista and, and that let in you know, Brighton and Huddersfield especially uh, to close the gap. Uh, but both of them uh, lost ground. And on the very last day of the season, you know, Brighton lost at Aston Villa and Newcastle defeated Barnsley and we took the title. Um, and that, that was a satisfying end to a season that also saw a League Cup run. As Mark quickly mentioned there, we we're, we're we're just missed out on reaching the semi-final mm. and should have really got there and the meeting with Manchester United after losing to Hull City on penalties. And, and that was a, a tie that they really should have won. Yeah, agree, agree. Mark, any special moments from you for this period or interesting interactions maybe with Rafa? during this season, because this, of course, was pre-COVID, where journalists could actually attend press conferences in person rather than do them on Zoom. So he probably spent a decent bit of time in his company, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, we did. I mean, what what was what I loved about Rafa Benitez was if you went along to speak to him, and, and there were a couple of times when, if this was a time of openness, really, with, with journalists, I think the club were able to um, change direction a little bit. And, you know, because there was a feeling that, like, actually the owner feels a lot more comfortable with Rafa being there and Rafa had I think negotiated to his contract as well and said look give me the chance to decide how the club operates and things and one of the things he said was I don't want any more bans for journalists I want I want to welcome everybody back into the um back into the fray so what he so what the club would do with they wouldn't they would invite the local media down to um to, to speak to to Rafa and, and and basically what you'd say is I will go down for an hour and I'll try and get some stuff in my pad for the international break or whatever and Rafa would sit there for three hours with you with water bottles placed on different parts of the table telling you tactically how he was going to do this game or what had happened in this game he'd be throwing questions at you were sort of saying 
So how how do we defend this corner? I've got this, this, and you'd be sitting there going, well, you know, like I don't know, you know, you're, you're the manager, you tell me. But it, that was very much what he tried to do. He tried to get us. His idea was almost educating you. He didn't answer questions. He educated you, and I think obviously it worked really well at Newcastle because we were all, you know, we were all kind of like everybody was was uh, was with him at the time. So I mean, it was always great for that. I think for me, three games st- stand out really: the Norwich game very much in the early start mm. of the season. You mentioned there that they had a really bad start, and they did. You know, Obviously, they lost the first game. They were terrible against Fulham. Uh, then they were really poor against Huddersfield, lost that game as well. And they came into the Norwich game. I think they won, they, they'd won games in between, but they came to the Norwich game. They were a goal down, weren't they, I think, um, approaching the final whistle. And they ended up winning the game um, with an injury time, wasn't it? It was it, deep into injury time. I think they, I think they were, were they two 0 down actually. I, mean, I can't exactly remember. But I think they were two 0 down, and they ended up winning the game three two. I can't remember exactly what happened. It's it's, it's a while ago. Now. I do remember that was an incredible two goals in injury time to win the game, and just absolutely gave the team lift off. I thought at the time it was absolutely incredible. Um, I also remember a um, I also remember a, a, a League Cup game against Preston, believe it or not, against, uh, when Alexander Mitrovic. Um, scored uh, and, and it felt at the time that Newcastle were building you know that was a League Cup game they had Hull in the next round and I think like like Paul said it felt like they should have you know they, they should have gone on and, and won that and then finally for me the final day of the season was uh, was was the best was the best moment but I do remember some moments of, of genuine discomfort as well they lost to Fulham at home got turned over really really badly by Fulham uh, at the time Sessignon absolutely tore them apart and there was points there where you started to think are they going to get pushed into the playoffs here? Because Huddersfield were going absolutely fantastically well um, on a, on the fraction of the budget that Newcastle had. And you did worry that if it had gone into the playoffs, the tension around the ground would have been absolutely incredible. But as it turned out, it was it was, it was was pretty special. I wasn't at the game, but I do remember that they beat QPR by six six goals to nil as well, where John Joe Shelby scored scored a hat-trick. I think Lee Ryder gave him a 10 out of 10, one, one rare 10 out of 10 for him. Uh, and that was, you know, that, that, that those, those were some, you know, they, they did have some really, 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 really good moments. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think it sort of sticks with me now, like looking back, just how in control Rafa was pretty much from the start. You know, he didn't, he didn't panic at those two, two defeats. And his message to everybody was, look, keep doing the things that we're telling you to do. It will come good. And it, it, and it did in the end. Um, very much probably the message that he's given to people at Everton at the moment. And it's probably pretty tricky, I think, at Everton at the moment for him. But but it, when he was at Newcastle, he had everybody behind him. I think that made the difference. It did, yeah. And and Paul, into 2017-18, the, the fans were very much enjoying the revolution and hoping that his presence would maybe inspire Mike Ashley to, to give the club the investment financially and emotionally that it that it had been lacking. Yeah, well, that was certainly the hope. Um with Benitez in charge uh, for a return to the top flight, you know, confidence was very high that he would secure United's Premier League place. And he did that uh, with ease in the end. His popularity was now just, you know, massive. He raided the transfer market, uh, although with, it has to be said, with limited funds. Uh, so new arrivals were largely bargains alone or loan deals. United now had uh, centre forward Jocelyn, um and, and Brazilian Kennedy. Uh, in the black and white, as well as Lejeune, Manquillo, Jacob Murphy, and for a short period, Leicester City's international centre-forward, Slamani. Goalkeeper Martin Dubravka arrived uh, on loan, eventually making that deal permanent. And uh, Mikel Marino came from Borussia Dortmund and looked a good guy before strangely heading back to Spain at the end of the season, then developing into uh, a, a top player in, in Spain 
uh, with Real Sociedad and reaching the international stage. Rafa guided Newcastle to sixth place by October, uh, but then results dipped and the Magpies slipped down the table, continually throwing away leads. And the struggle to score for a long period, Perez top goal getter with 10 goals, but the manager's know-how ensured safety with four successive wins in the spring, and they climbed up the table to finish 10th, comfortably uh, securing their Premier League place. As I said, Rafa's ambition, though, was much more than safety, and, and uh, uh, that ran into a conflict with the owner, I think. You know, Mike Ashley had placed the for sale notice on the club once more, and a long-running and weary takeover saga began. Uh, and the owner's relationship with supporters deteriorated, while a working understanding with the manager uh, became somewhat disastrous too. So things weren't all, all pretty. Yeah, you can just see where the, the relationship starts to, to sour and the story takes a downward turn. Mark, this was the start of the big takeover speculation. Amanda Stavely and Murdoch Kodosky, they famously attended the Liverpool game at home in September of uh, 2017. And she's Amanda and, and Murdoch have been staple of Newcastle United media coverage ever since, haven't they? Oh, whatever happened to them? Like, has anybody heard from them since? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think what you know, this was a, this was a, a period. I think for me, of a bit of a sliding doors period of like what could have what could have been. You know, obviously, I think you know, I, I think at the time, at the end of the at the end of the championship season, we we, had, we didn't cover it in the promotion season, but but it, it all started in the kind of January of that of that year where. Um, suddenly, you had people in the background, voices in the background, questioning Rafa's recruitment policy. Why do we need? Why does he need Daryl Murphy? You know, why, why? You know, he spent all this money on on these players, and these players haven't got any resale. Rafa went to the well again in the January and wanted them to loan Andros Townsend, and he said, "Look, if we can get Andros Townsend in, I think Ruben Loftus Cheek was the other one as well. If we can get Andros Townsend in, and we can get Loftus Cheek on loan as well, we not only will we have um, enough to, to get us promoted, but we'll also then have built." team for the next year. Newcastle just came back to him and said, Lee Charlie said, there's, there's no money. We can't do this Andros Townsend deal. So I think that started the, the bitterness, really. And then what we had at the end of the season, and we had it every year with Rafa, was is he going to stay? Is he going to walk away? Because he's so annoyed at the transfer policy. And of course, 2017-2018, what started to happen was Newcastle started to look at the finances and said, and ironically, because Mike Ashley wanted to sell, said, we, we have there is no money the only money that you're going to get is from selling players and from any money from the team from the tv money as well so rafa ended up basically um recruiting pretty much on the on the cheap in, in his opinion he didn't think the squad was had moved forward enough to to, to sort of take them forward i mean he ended up getting you know jossaloo in the end and i think you know rather unfairly he, he i remember in the press conference actually where he talked about strikers and he said if you pay 20 million, you get a striker who will score goals. If you pay 10 million, you get a striker who's, you know, you get a striker who's kind of like can do some things. If you pay 5 million, you get a striker who's, you know, who maybe can't do any of the things. And they end up paying 5 million for Jocelyn. So like, he knew exactly what he was going to get. I mean, he, he explained that, that signing to us as like, look, well, he speaks Spanish, so I'll be able to talk to him. He's good in the air and he'll do what I tell him. And that was basically it. He wasn't saying he was a great player. He was just saying he'll do what I tell him. So there he is. And, you know, I think Jocelyn did OK. And I think, you know, look, I think as much as Mike Ashley deserves a lot of criticism for some of the things that happened at Newcastle, we also have to accept that Rafa Benitez is famously doesn't ever settle for what he gets. You know, he'll always be pushing. He always likes that conflict, trying to get people to do to do a little bit more and a bit more of what they, uh, what they should do. And I think, 
it's interesting really that that that, that was a you know that, that I think probably there was blame on both sides if I'm being honest you know I think Rafa had to accept that you know they did back him financially in the uh, in in the uh, in the championship so Premier League they were never going to have as much money I think what he contended was he'd been lied to was what he said he said I, I, they they lied to me they told me I I could have certain things and they also they wouldn't let me just spend the money how I want to so I think that was the backdrop against everything um but but it was a it was a strange year because they started actually really well. I remember they drew with Liverpool, Jocelyn scored and they, they could have won that game and they were they were looking really, really strong then. Then they had a just a terrible downward spiral where they um, I remember them losing at home to Watford three 0 and and we all started mm. to worry that they were going to go they were going to go down. That was a dreadful display. They went to West Brom, obviously got relegated that year, and they were two 0 down. Got a two two, and it was like you know, and then suddenly it was you know I think Rafa came out and said if we stay up it'll be a miracle, and you know or, or I will have worked a miracle or something, and that created a lot of tension. And by now, like Paul said, it was very much a full frontal civil war. There was no love lost between either side, um, but they did, and, and what and I think what cemented Rafa's legacy at Newcastle was when the chips were down they they did pull out the performances and they were always tactically just brilliant brilliant displays I, I think of the Manchester United win first game Dubravka had mm. as a Newcastle player I like a lot of fans were didn't know why they'd signed a goalkeeper they felt they had a decent goalkeeper and Carl Darlow was still there obviously but he was absolutely inspired. It won them the game. You know, probably Dubravka's fee was paid off in, in one game there because that, that I think, gave them a springboard onto, onto safety. And in the end, they finished the season incredibly well and finished 10th, which Rafa, in the end, sort of said, you know, he's famous. He, he liked to tell us that football was a lie. And I think he said that was the, you know, it wasn't a 10th place finish. It was a, uh, you know, it, we, it gave us a false sense of security going into the next year. And again, you know, in the summer, we had very much will he stay won't he stay and i think in the end he said i, I will i will see i will respect and honor my contracts which was a three-year contract so it took him to the next the next season but it was again the backdrop of disappointment but i think what really was interesting is the takeover saga started then and um we had a situation i think where by then and, and we got a lot of criticism i remember getting a lot of criticism myself because i used to write Mike Ashley wants to sell this club now. He's finished with it. He does not believe. He's tried everything now. He's had Rafa. He just doesn't get football. He doesn't want to get football. He doesn't want to spend any money on football anymore. And by 2017, he had decided, I think he decided a long time before then, but by the time he'd had the fallout with Rafa and he thought, ah, do you know what? I just can't be bothered with this anymore. And he thought, I'm not going to put any more money into this football club, uh, but I'm going to make sure that it is in a good enough position that when somebody comes in, it's going to be really financially in, a, in such a good position that they can then spend money and they'll be able to work within FFP. And he's basically, he's, he's, his attitude from 2017 to 2021 was, I'm not putting any more money in it. I'm going to run it in a skeleton way because I think I can be I can sell it. And I think he probably thought he would have sold it before 2021. Uh, he probably thought it would take 18 months, maybe at tops, 12 months, 18 months at tops. In the end, it took four years. And I think what the problem was that the four years were quite damaging in between 2017 and 2021. Losing Rafa, obviously, which I know we'll go on to, was, I think, you know, very, very damaging for the football club. But to be fair to Ashley, he made that decision. And, you know, then he, um, you know, he, he had to do... He had to do what he had to do. And I think he, he was never going to put money in after that. And I think he probably, hopefully, will find out this month and moving forward that he actually, long term, that maybe was the right decision in the short term. And if he hadn't sold it in 2021, I was really worried about the future of the football club. But as it turned out, I think probably all of that 
kerfuffle and all that stuff around there with, with Staveley in particular coming in, it, it was damaging for the World Cup at the time, but long-term, obviously, it paid off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Paul, back back to onto the pitch matters. Um, how did Rafa's second full season in the Premier League, this is 2018-19, how did that shape up for the club? Well, it was much the same story as the previous campaign, really. Signings came in. Uh, these were largely second-rate at best, lacking goals up front, a poor start, you know, all the same uh, facts as the previous uh, season. Um, United failed to win a game until the end of October. They flirted with relegation, then survived with games to spare in 13th spot. Uh, and even beat champions Manchester City at St James's Park, the highlight of a forgettable season, really. This time, United did spend a bit of money, uh, albeit not at the level of the top clubs. A record £21 million was paid for Miggy Almiron from the USA, um, but he was largely unknown and untried in the Premier League. Fernandes, Muto, Shaw and Keeson Young all arrived too. Uh, Salomon Rondon came on loan and showed much endeavour up front and became a popular uh, signing for a short period. He scored 12 goals with Ayosi uh, Perez, again, top scorer with 13. Yeah, so again, pragmatic signings and... It was a carbon copy, really, of, of the previous season, wasn't it, Mark? And it, it was a difficult start, but the way the club finished this season, I think play, they're playing a bit more positive. It was a bit of a 4-3-3 happening with Almiron, Rondon and Perez up front. There was a bit of optimism that he'd managed to turn the team into a more offensive club. Absolutely, yeah. I think I think probably partially what was so regrettable about the fact that he left at the end of this season was the fact that they, they they did look as if they were clicking towards the end of that year. Liverpool came to St James's Park, and they, this was a Liverpool team that went on to win the league next year, and were in the middle of like I think a almost like a twelve month period where they were almost unbeatable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no team at home could do it, and I think they won the European. I think they won the European Cup in the or the Champions League. Sorry, in the, in this period as well. And Newcastle gave them a hell of a game um, at St James's Park. It was a fantastic contest, a really 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 top top game. And they obviously went to Leicester and won there as well. I mean, they just generally, I think, at that, that point towards the end of the season, looked really, really strong. Having at the start of the season been absolutely pitiful, terrible. You know, yeah. the Cardiff game, I think I remember that nil-nil was, you know, one of the worst games uh, of the Rafa, Rafa era, definitely. But towards the end, they seemed as if they'd started to build something. Salomon Rondon was absolutely exceptional this year. You know, really, really worked so well with Iosi Perez. And it felt like Newcastle were, were, were getting somewhere. Um, it felt like, you know, look, give him some money in the transfer market. Give him some money. Give him what he wants. Go and sign Rondon. And we will be motoring and we will start to think that Newcastle can be relevant again. But obviously it wasn't to be for many of the reasons that we've talked about before. But yeah, I think it was a strange season. Probably the, sort of flipped it round from last season where they started quite well the season before. They started really badly this year and they almost got to Christmas and... You feared that they were they were you know they were in real real trouble. Um, as it was, they kind of you know they did they did turn it around. Some canny loan signings again. You know they they always seem to play the loan market quite well in uh, in Rafa's in Rafa's time, and they did you know they did they did end up doing quite well uh, there as well. Obviously, funny enough, Steve Bruce ended up doing quite well in the loan market as well um, in both his seasons. So they did tend to kind of do January okay, um, and it and it did and it did help. But I think the, the big memory for me of this season was just how much the is he going to stay narrative dominated everything that season. If it wasn't that, it was the takeover. Uh, and we, this was the year that we had. I think this was the year where at Christmas we had 
well, sorry, in the summer before it, before it, we had um, the the sort of Dubai-based consortium. Uh, oh no, that was the season season after. It was Christmas. We had Peter Kenyon was was mm. within weeks was going to take over, and then in the summer it was Midhat Kidwai and the uh, and the, yeah. the Dubai-based consortium who turned out to be you know a, a mirage. I don't think there was anything at all in that but the kenyan one i think there was some you know that he did have a very serious financial back who ended up going going out of uh mm. ended up not not having that not having that sort of backing in the end so you know takeover and rafa's future dominated everything we almost couldn't enjoy the football because all of that mm. stuff was going on off the pitch and it did become very much i think this was a period of 2019 to 2021 where literally i think you had so little talk about football it was just yeah. Take over is Benita staying, take over is Benita staying, take over is Benita staying. And then the end of the the end of the summer, which I'm sure you'll probably get onto now, was just painful. Weeks and weeks and weeks of not knowing whether Rafa was going to stay, and then obviously having all this stuff going on with Dubai, which ended up being nothing, despite the fact that they were telling us it was going to happen. It was it was a very painful way to end what should have been something to celebrate. You know, I think the Rafa mm-hmm. era for me was enjoyable at the start and by the end it was painful it was really painful i think probably for fans it felt the same as well there were some really good moments but just a, a an aching sense of what might have been and you know if i'm being honest i think rafa made the wrong decision to leave because you look at him now where he is now he's never going to have that level of love that he had when he was at newcastle he'll never have that again he'll never have the the freedom i think to make mistakes which he had at newcastle as well and um, you know if he'd have stayed and uh, maybe signed another year or two years i think uh, Ashley wanted him to sign a, a long, long-term contract. And if he'd have signed that long-term contract, I think the club would have ended up getting taken over and he would have been in charge for that as well. And, um, you know, which I think was what Stavely and um, her team wanted anyway. They, they they wanted Rafa and I think they even considered going back in for him a few a few months ago as well. Um, but obviously they, they couldn't in the end. But, uh, but it was just a massive sense of regret for me at the end of it, you know, having chronicled it and seen how great he was for long periods and I think he got the club he was the right fit for the club at the time and it was just a real shame that it didn't it didn't go any further than um, than it ended up yeah it's a modern tragedy isn't it the the story <laughs> of Rafa at, at Newcastle United but Paul for the record can you talk us through how it officially ended for Rafa at Newcastle well as as Mark's indicated long before the season's end the rift between Rafa and the owner widened and uh and very few considered it could be healed. His vision was on a different planet to that of the one to weigh Ashley. Uh, at the end of the season, the Spaniard headed to China and United had lost one of Europe's top managers. Newcastle fans were utterly frustrated and incensed. Protests against the owner reached fever point, uh, not helped by an unpopular replacement as boss in Tyneside born past Manchester United hero Steve Bruce. Uh, he arrived at a very difficult time uh, for him personally, and, and was hardly given a chance by anyone uh, to lead the team he supported as a kid. The mood around St James's Park became you know, very toxic, and that, that continued for several months. Yeah, I mean, if you'd told a Newcastle fan at the end of that season that Rafa would be effectively allowed to walk away and replaced by Steve Bruce, who at the time was toiling at the wrong end of the Championship, I think they might have, you know self-combusted and, and Mark is it what was the what was the situation like that summer was was Steve Bruce was he at the end of a long shopping list of managers and, and he was the, the one in the end who said yes I'll, I'll take this thankless task on well funnily enough I think I think there was they, there was two two managers I think that would have that would have probably satisfied Newcastle fans that, that Newcastle considered 
I think Brendan Rodgers was the first one who was very much, there was a bit of a dance going on, I think, between Rodgers' associates and, and what was going to go on at Newcastle. I think there was there was, there was was almost a, a, you know, will Rafa go to Leicester and then Brendan Rodgers will probably end up um, coming from Celtic to, to, to Newcastle. As it turned out in the end, you know, he, he ended up going to Leicester and I think that was a, a good move for him. But he was keen on the Newcastle job. I know from people around him that he, he would have taken the Newcastle job and I think that would have been a, you know, a, a good next move. But then what the hierarchy really tried to do and they really pushed for and they got they got a decent way with him as well was going for Mikel Arteta, who obviously was still, was at Manchester City at the time, was Pep Guardiola's number two. And it appealed to, appealed to Arteta definitely appealed to Newcastle. But I think what happened in the end was Arteta did his background research. And obviously, I think he did end up speaking to people around Rafa as well. And it was very much the message was, look, you're going to go in there and you're not probably going to get back. You're not going to get what you want. And obviously, in the end, Arteta ended up going to uh, going to Arsenal. So it probably worked out OK for him. But he was the number one choice. He was the one that they wanted. But I think what happened was they got, they got further on in the summer. And I think the, the, the problem that had happened in the summer was but Newcastle had waited a long time for, for Rafa to make an official call. They they kind of hung around, I think, thinking he'll blink before we do. And I think he might end up coming back into the fray. But it was, you know, there was just by then all, tr- all trust had gone between the two parties. But Newcastle's approach, if you spoke to them, you spoke to Lee Charney at the time, was we let we didn't make any attempt to go for anybody else while Rafa was still under contract. We we wanted him to stay. That was the only thing that we wanted. Uh, Mike Ashley, I think, ended up giving an interview to me in the Daily Mail where he spoke about mm-hmm. what had happened in that summer, and that was his version of things. Obviously, Rafa gave a slightly different version of things, but they said we went right to the end of it. That left them with not much time before the start of the season. Arteta didn't happen, and they got to the point where it was like, right, we need somebody in who's experienced who knows the game, who we can get. And we feel, you know, we'll, we'll come in and be able to steady the ship. And that's, I think, how they ended up at Steve at Steve Bruce, which, you know, I think probably, I think we all know what happened in the end with Steve Bruce. But I think playing devil's advocate, he did for two years what the job that Newcastle wanted him to do. Keep him in the Premier League and imagine, you know, what could happen if there's a takeover. And I think probably by hook or by crook, they ended up doing that, and I think that was the uh, that was the to, to me the, the the sort of you know I think viewing it back, I think like now in the history podcast, probably in 20, 30 years time, you'll look back and say reevaluate what Steve Bruce did and say he did the job that was asked of him, and actually probably when the heat's been taken out of the situation, you'll say fair play. I think probably it's a bit too fresh in the memory, isn't it, for everybody to say fair play. Well done, mm. Steve Bruce, for keeping us in the Premier League because, you know, it was a pretty painful two years for a, for a long way. It, it had its moments where it was okay, but I think probably it was it, it didn't quite happen. But that that summer was just a, a case in point, I think, of how if Newcastle had communicated better, if they'd have, you know, done things in a better way, um, then it would have been okay. But as it was, they let Rafa Benitez run rings around them. I think, to be perfectly honest with you, and they should have made a better attempt, I think, to keep him. They, I think they should have just let him sign Salomon Rondon. I think things would have been okay. You know, they should have given him yeah. the budget that he wanted and gone and let him sign the players. He would have signed a short-term contract extension because I, I think he went to China, but he told us off the record in the press conferences before then, he wouldn't. He didn't think China was a, a viable and credible football project. So 
what happened there. I think he probably just ended up thinking, well, I'm going to go there. It's going to be very lucrative for me. And I'm also going to get to build something a little bit. And then I'll keep myself in the shop window to come back to England, which is obviously what has happened. But um, I think for both parties, I think there'll be a measure of regret around what happened in the summer when they look back at it in in in, um, in, in the long term, you know, because it didn't, it didn't help and it didn't help the club. I think they had a two very difficult years in the run up to 2021. And I think they're, they're paying the price now because they're at the bottom of the league pretty much, you know, and they need to do business now, don't they, to, to get themselves mm. into out of relegation trouble. Mm. But a very strange time and um, difficult time, I think, difficult time as a journalist as well to, to cover the club for those two years because there was so much frustration and so much anger I think towards what's going on in Newcastle you know don't forget they lost so many season ticket holders as well in that in that um in that summer as well when he left but you couldn't write positive stories it was very very difficult you just they just nobody wanted to hear them you know which is the opposite now probably the team are team still losing games but people just want positive stories because they sort of want to give everybody the benefit of the doubt so it's a very different situation now but I think you know just such a sense of regret around Rafa. Um, Steve Bruce, it was an impossible job for him. I don't think he should have taken it in the first place, to be honest with you. I think he knew what was going to happen and he was warned it was what was going to happen. But, you know, he got the chance to manage Newcastle and he kept them in the Premier League and probably to outsiders, they'd say his, his reputation was enhanced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fascinating. We're, we're, we're going to be covering that in the the, the last episode of, of Chronicle Next, the Steve Bruce era and the takeover. But, um Really fascinating couple of years under Rafa Benitez turned into just such a dramatic poker game, basically, between Mike Ashley and Rafa. And, and by the sounds of it, I don't think anyone won. Both parties came out of it badly, uh, not not how they intended it to go. But yeah, it was it was a it was a, a real a real roller coaster that really epitomised the entire story of Newcastle United. It got a lot of things wrong, a lot of things right, and we're still we're still there at the end of it. Just. And of course, for further reading on this, yeah, we should point listeners in the direction of, of a book you wrote, Mark, The Raffolution. I did mention it at the start. It was obviously a significant period of, of your career because you did literally decide to, to write about it. Yeah, I think what, what was interesting was the end of the summer. Um, Reach uh, has a, a, a sports book um, department and I, t- I just sent them an email about halfway through the season and said, look, there's something really interesting building here. And, um, you know, I, and I've kind of been lucky enough to, to spend a lot of time with Rafa and, you know, would you be interested in the book? And they sort of said yes. And uh, that was the period where they started to lose games. So I kind of like, I kind of thought, well, nobody's going to buy the book if they don't get promoted because because there's no, you know, there's no story there. But I, I, I kind of like, I thought, I still fancy doing this book. And we ended up getting to the point where it was like, if they don't get promoted, there's no book. So is it worth starting to write it? And in the end, I think I wrote it in about 14 days or 15 days or something so it was a bit of a yeah it nearly killed me honestly it was mm. a, it was absolutely incredible run to get it i was writing thousands of words a day but i really enjoyed doing it and um you know it was a great experience to do it and and you know i think what what it made me realize was going back through all my notes and going back through all those kind of things was just how methodical benitez had been because everything that he said at the start of the season in august happened Everything he said, every reason for signing a player when you look back at the press conferences in August, they all happened in the end. And I think that's why I have so much respect for him. And I, and I, and I still think, you know, he's, he's, a, he's an elite coach. He's very much a singular kind of coach. I don't think there's too many like him out there. And, and he really believed that Newcastle United, he could take Newcastle United into, you know, he could be the man who, who, who unlocked it. Um, and I don't think he was that far away at times. I think he, towards the end of his time, he really did bring in a 
new mentality to Newcastle United, but unfortunately, um, you know, he, he just wasn't allowed to take the next step with it. But um, but yeah, I really enjoyed writing the book. Very enjoyable time um, working with him in press conferences. Incredibly um, political guy as well. Off the mm -hmm. record, some of the stuff he said was just incredible. You know, he, he would sort of say, I remember like before the season started, me, Lee Ryder and uh, I think Miles Stafford from the Shields Gazette all sat all stood with him in before season started and some of the stuff he was coming out with like off the record about you know the mike ashley and stuff was just you know incredible but uh, you know that the whole 14 years i mean alan pardew took us down the quayside once uh and uh to try and run rings around joe Kinnear. it was like that was just mike ashley <laughs> united they just couldn't get a grip of everything you know they were just it was just mm. incredible really yeah. uh and, and rafa right relished that he loved it I, I you know i know he says i know he always seemed he loved it. The political side of it, he's always said he wasn't bothered about it, but he loved it. And and he always won. He always won the political battles. And that was mm. why he's sort of seen as a legend at Newcastle and Mike Ashley's seen as a villain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Politics with Rafa down the quayside with Pardew. And save that one for your second book, I think. <laughs> yeah, I know it was... Yeah. Um... Legends and vil Villains is a good title. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant brilliant well thanks mark for, for doing this today and and um, there we have it listener we've covered 138 years of club history the revolution it's been and gone benitez restored newcastle the top flight and he was building the foundations for something but um sadly it wasn't a project mike actually seemed to have the appetite for and uh, newcastle have been left to tick along for the time being and just uh, two more years to go in our series and we're going to round that off neatly next week in episode 30 of chronicled that's going to cover 2019 to the present day. So that's Steve Bruce, an 18-month takeover saga and the uh, hopefully glorious future ahead for the new Newcastle United. So, yeah, thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Mark, for joining. And please stay subscribed, everyone, to the Everything is Black and White podcast via whichever podcast platform you're listening to us on. Hit the notification bell so you get that final episode as soon as it lands. And follow us on social media. We're at Chronicle NUFC on Twitter. Facebook and Instagram. Video versions of these episodes are all available to watch on our YouTube channel, which is the EIBW podcast on YouTube. And remember, stay up to date with everything black and white by subscribing to our daily Newcastle United newsletters. Completely free to do this. I'll put a link to sign up in our show notes. And if you tap that and uh, select Sport Newcastle United updates, enter email address, you'll be signed up to receive all the latest Newcastle United content from Chronicle Live every single day so yeah thanks so much for listening to chronicle the history of newcastle united with me matt ketchell paul joanne and our special guest mark douglas <laughs> <laughs>